section nine of shirley by charlotte bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain briarmains messieurs hellstone and sykes began to be extremely jocose and congratulatory with mr moore when he returned to them after dismissing the deputation he was so quiet however under their compliments upon his firmness etc and wore a countenance so like a still dark day equally beamless and breezeless that the rector after glancing shrewdly into his eyes buttoned up his felicitations with his coat and said to sykes whose senses were not acute enough to enable him to discover unassisted where his presence and conversation were a nuisance come sir your road and mine lie partly together had we not better bear each other company we'll bid more good morning and leave him to the happy fancies he seems disposed to indulge and where is sugden demanded moore looking up aha cried hellstone i've not been quite idle while you were busy i've been helping you a little i flatter myself not injudiciously i thought it better not to lose time so while you were parleying with that down-looking gentleman farron i think his name is i opened this back window shouted to murkertroyd who was in the stable to bring mr sykes's gig round then i smuggled sugden and brother moses wooden leg and all through the aperture and saw them mount the gig always with our good friend sykes's permission of course sugden took the reins he drives like yehu and in another quarter of an hour barraclough will be safe in stilbro jail very good thank you said moore and good morning gentlemen he added and so politely conducted them to the door and saw them clear of his premises he was a taciturn serious man the rest of the day he did not even bandy a repartee with joe scott who for his part said to his master only just what was absolutely necessary to the progress of business but looked at him a good deal out of the corners of his eyes frequently came to poke the counting-house fire for him and once as he was locking up for the day the mill was then working short time owing to the slackness of trade observed that it was a grand evening and he could wish mr moore to take a bit of a walk up the hollow it would do him good at this recommendation mr moore burst into a short laugh and after demanding of joe what all this solicitude meant and whether he took him for a woman or a child seized the keys from his hand and shoved him by the shoulders out of his presence he called him back however ere he had reached the yard gate joe do you know those farins they are not well off i suppose they cannot be well off sir when they've not had work as a three month ye'd see your cell at williams sorely changed fair paired they've selled most o the stuff out of the house he was not a bad workman ye never had a better sir sin ye began trade and decent people the whole family niver decenter the wife's a rate can't body and is clean ye mut eat your porridge off the house floor they're sorely comed down i wish william could get a job as gardener or summat of that way he understands gardening weel he once lived with a scotchman that touched him the mysteries of the craft as they say now then you can go joe you need not stand there staring at me ye've no orders to give sir none but for you to take yourself off which joe did accordingly spring evenings are often cold and raw and though this had been a fine day warm even in the morning and meridian sunshine the air chilled at sunset the ground crisped and ere dusk a hoar-frost was insidiously stealing over growing grass and unfolding bud it whitened the pavement in front of briar mains mr york's residence and made silent havoc among the tender plants in his garden and on the mossy level of his lawn as to that great tree strong trunked and broad-armed which guarded the gable nearest the road it seemed to defy a spring night frost to harm its still bare boughs and so did the leafless grove of walnut trees 
rising tall behind the house in the dusk of the moonless if starry night lights from windows shone vividly this was no dark or lonely scene nor even a silent one briar mains stood near the highway it was rather an old place and had been built ere that highway was cut and when a lane winding up through fields was the only path conducting to it briarfield lay scarce a mile off its hum was heard its glare distinctly seen briar chapel a large new raw wesleyan place of worship rose but a hundred yards distant and as there was even now a prayer-meeting being held within its walls the illumination of its windows cast a bright reflection on the road while a hymn of a most extraordinary description such as a very quaker might feel himself moved by the spirit to dance to roused cheerily all the echoes of the vicinage the words were distinctly audible by snatches here is a quotation or two from different strains for the singers passed jauntily from hymn to hymn and from tune to tune with an ease and buoyancy all their own oh who can explain this struggle for life this travail and pain this trembling and strife plague earthquake and famine and tumult and war the wonderful coming of jesus declare for every fight is dreadful and loud the warrior's delight is slaughter and blood his foes overturning till all shall expire and this is with burning and fuel and fire here followed an interval of clamorous prayer accompanied by fearful groans a shout of i've found liberty dodo bills has fun liberty rang from the chapel and out all the assembly broke again what a mercy is this what a heaven of bliss how unspeakably happy am i gathered into the fold with thy people enrolled with thy people to live and to die o oh, the goodness of god in employing a clod his tribute of glory to raise his standard to bear and with triumph declare his unspeakable riches of grace o oh, the fathomless love that has deigned to approve and prosper the work of my hands with my pastoral crook i went over the brook and behold i am spread into bands who i ask in amaze hath begotten me these and inquire from what quarter they came my full heart it replies they are born from the skies and gives glory to god and the lamb the stanza which followed this after another and longer interregnum of shouts yells ejaculations frantic cries agonized groans seemed to cap the climax of noise and zeal sleeping on the brink of sin tophet gaped to take us in mercy to our rescue flew broke the snare and brought us through here as in a lion's den undevoured we still remain past secure the watery flood hanging on the arm of god here terrible most distracting to the ear was the strange shout in which the last stanza was given here we raise our voices higher shout in the refiner's fire clap our hands amidst the flame glory give to jesus name the roof of the chapel did not fly off which speaks volumes in praise of its solid slating but if briar chapel seemed alive so also did briar mains though certainly the mansion appeared to enjoy a quieter phase of existence than the temple some of its windows too were aglow the lower casements opened upon the lawn curtains concealed the interior and partly obscured the ray of the candles which lit it but they did not entirely muffle the sound of voice and laughter we are privileged to enter that front door and to penetrate to the domestic sanctum it is not the presence of company which makes mr york's habitation lively for there is none within it save his own family and they are assembled in that farthest room to the right the back parlour this is the usual sitting-room of an evening those windows would be seen by daylight to be of brilliantly stained glass purple and amber the predominant hues glittering round a gravely tinted medallion in the centre of each representing the suave head of william shakespeare and the serene one of john milton some canadian views 
hung on the walls green forest and blue water scenery and in the midst of them blazes a night eruption of vesuvius very ardently it glows contrasted with the cool foam and azure of cataracts and the dusky depths of woods the fire illuminating this room reader is such as if you be a southern you do not often see burning on the hearth of a private apartment it is a clear hot coal fire heaped high in the ample chimney mr york will have such fires even in warm summer weather he sits beside it with a book in his hand a little round stand at his elbow supporting a candle but he is not reading he is watching his children opposite to him sits his lady a personage whom i might describe minutely but i feel no vocation to the task i see her though very plainly before me a large woman of the gravest aspect care on her front and on her shoulders but not overwhelming inevitable care rather the sort of voluntary exemplary cloud and burden people ever carry who deem it their duty to be gloomy ah well a day mrs york had that notion and grave as saturn she was morning noon and night and hard things she thought if any unhappy wight especially of the female sex who dared in her presence to show the light of a gay heart on a sunny countenance in her estimation to be mirthful was to be profane to be cheerful was to be frivolous she drew no distinctions yet she was a very good wife a very careful mother looked after her children unceasingly was sincerely attached to her husband only the worst of it was if she could have had her will she would not have permitted him to have any friend in the world beside herself all his relations were insupportable to her and she kept them at arm's length mr york and she agreed perfectly well yet he was naturally a social hospitable man an advocate for family unity and in his youth as has been said he liked none but lively cheerful women why he chose her how they contrived to suit each other is a problem puzzling enough but which might soon be solved if one had time to go into the analysis of the case suffice it here to say that york had a shadowy side as well as a sunny side to his character and that his shadowy side found sympathy and affinity in the whole of his wife's uniformly overcast nature for the rest she was a strong-minded woman never said a weak or a trite thing took stern democratic views of society and rather cynical ones of human nature considered herself perfect and safe and the rest of the world all wrong her main fault was a brooding eternal immitigable suspicion of all men things creeds and parties this suspicion was a mist before her eyes a false guide in her path wherever she looked wherever she turned it may be supposed that the children of such a pair were not likely to turn out quite ordinary commonplace beings and they were not you see six of them reader the youngest is a baby on the mother's knee it is all her own yet and that one she has not yet begun to doubt suspect condemn it derives its sustenance from her it hangs on her it clings to her it loves her above everything else in the world she is sure of that because as it lives by her it cannot be otherwise therefore she loves it the two next are girls rose and jessie they are both now at their father's knee they seldom go near their mother except when obliged to do so rose the elder is twelve years old she is like her father the most like him of the whole group but it is a granite head copied in ivory all is softened in colour and line york himself has a harsh face his daughter's is not harsh neither is it quite pretty it is simple childlike in feature the round cheeks bloom as to the grey eyes they are otherwise than childlike a serious soul lights them a young soul yet but it will mature if the body lives and neither father nor mother have a spirit to compare with it partaking of the essence of each it will one day be better than either stronger much purer more aspiring 
rose is a still sometimes a stubborn girl now her mother wants to make of her such a woman as she is herself a woman of dark and dreary duties and rose has a mind full set thick sown with the germs of ideas her mother never knew it is agony to her often to have these ideas trampled on and repressed she has never rebelled yet but if hard driven she will rebel one day and then it will be once for all rose loves her father her father does not rule her with a rod of iron he is good to her he sometimes fears she will not live so bright are the sparks of intelligence which at moments flash from her glance and gleam in her language this idea makes him often sadly tender to her he has no idea that little jessie will die young she is so gay and chattering arch original even now passionate when provoked but most affectionate if caressed by turns gentle and rattling exacting yet generous fearless of her mother for instance whose irrationally hard and strict rule she is often defied yet reliant on any who will help her jessie with her little piquant face engaging prattle and winning ways is made to be a pet and her father's pet she accordingly is it is odd that the doll should resemble her mother feature by feature as rose resembles her father and yet the physiognomy how different mr yorke if a magic mirror were now held before you and if therein were shown you your two daughters as they will be twenty years from this night what would you think the magic mirror is here you shall learn their destinies and first that of your little life jessie do you know this place no you never saw it but you recognize the nature of these trees this foliage the cypress the willow the yew stone crosses like these are not unfamiliar to you nor are these dim garlands of everlasting flowers here is the place green sod and a grey marble headstone jessie sleeps below she lived through an april day much loved was she much loving she often in her brief life shed tears she had frequent sorrows she smiled between gladdening whatever saw her her death was tranquil and happy in rose's guardian arms for rose had been her stay and defence through many trials the dying and the watching english girls were at that hour alone in a foreign country and the soil of that country gave jessie a grave now behold rose two years later the crosses and garlands looked strange but the hills and woods of this landscape look still stranger this indeed is far from england remote must be the shores which wear that wild luxuriant aspect this is some virgin solitude unknown birds flutter round the skirts of that forest no european river this on whose banks rose sits thinking the little quiet yorkshire girl is a lonely emigrant in some region of the southern hemisphere will she ever come back the three eldest of the family are all boys matthew mark and martin they are seated together in that corner engaged in some game observe their three heads much alike at a first glance at a second different at a third contrasted dark-haired dark-eyed red-cheeked are the whole trio small english features they all possess all own a blended resemblance to sire and mother and yet a distinctive physiognomy mark of a separate character belongs to each i shall not say much about matthew the first-born of the house though it is impossible to avoid gazing at him long and conjecturing what qualities that visage hides or indicates he is no plain-looking boy that jet-black hair white brow high-coloured cheek those quick dark eyes are good points in their way how is it that look as long as you will there is but one object in the room and that the most sinister to which matthew's face seems to bear an affinity and of which ever and anon it reminds you strangely the eruption of vesuvius 
flame and shadow seem the component parts of that lad's soul no daylight in it and no sunshine and no pure cool moonbeam ever shone there he has an english frame but apparently not an english mind you would say an italian stiletto in a sheath of british workmanship he is crossed in the game look at his scowl mr yorke sees it and what does he say in a low voice he pleads mark and martin don't anger your brother and this is ever the tone adopted by both parents theoretically they decry partiality no rights of primogeniture are to be allowed in that house but matthew is never to be vexed never to be opposed they avert provocation from him as assiduously as they would avert fire from a barrel of gunpowder concede conciliate is their motto wherever he is concerned the republicans are fast making a tyrant of their own flesh and blood this the younger scions know and feel and at heart they all rebel against the injustice they cannot read their parents motives they only see the difference of treatment the dragon's teeth are already sown amongst mr york's young olive branches discord will one day be the harvest mark is a bonny-looking boy the most regular featured of the family he is exceedingly calm his smile is shrewd he can say the driest most cutting things in the quietest of tones despite his tranquillity a somewhat heavy brow speaks temper and reminds you that the smoothest waters are not always the safest besides he is too still unmoved phlegmatic to be happy life will never have much joy in it for mark by the time he is five-and-twenty he will wonder why people ever laugh and think all fools who seem merry poetry will not exist for mark either in literature or in life its best effusions will sound to him mere rant and jargon enthusiasm will be his aversion and contempt mark will have no youth while he looks juvenile and blooming he will be already middle-aged in mind his body is now fourteen years of age but his soul is already thirty martin the youngest of the three owns another nature life may or may not be brief for him but it will certainly be brilliant he will pass through all its illusions half believe in them wholly enjoy them then outlive them that boy is not handsome not so handsome as either of his brothers he is plain there is a husk upon him a dry shell and he will wear it till he is near twenty then he will put it off about that period he will make himself handsome he will wear uncouth manners till that age perhaps homely garments but the chrysalis will retain the power of transfiguring itself into the butterfly and such transfiguration will in due season take place for a space he will be vain probably a downright puppy eager for pleasure and desirous of admiration a thirst too for knowledge he will want all that the world can give him both of enjoyment and lore he will perhaps take deep draughts at each fount that thirst satisfied what next i know not martin might be a remarkable man whether he will or not the seer is powerless to predict on that subject there has been no open vision take mr york's family in the aggregate there is as much mental power in those six young heads as much originality as much activity and vigour of brain as divided amongst half a dozen commonplace broods would give to each rather more than an average amount of sense and capacity mr york knows this and is proud of his race yorkshire has such families here and there amongst her hills and wolds peculiar racy vigorous of good blood and strong brain turbulent somewhat in the pride of their strength and intractable in the force of their native powers wanting polish wanting consideration wanting docility but sound spirited and true-bred as the eagle on the cliff or the steed in the steppe a low tap is heard at the parlour door the boys have been making such a noise over their game and little jessie besides 
has been singing so sweet a scotch song to her father who delights in scotch and italian songs and has taught his musical little daughter some of the best that the ring at the outer door was not observed come in says mrs yorke in that conscientiously constrained and solemnized voice of hers which ever modulates itself to a funereal dreariness of tone though the subject it is exercised upon be but to give orders for the making of a pudding in the kitchen to bid the boys hang up their caps in the hall or to call the girls to their sewing come in and in came robert moore moore's habitual gravity as well as his abstemiousness for the case of spirit decanters is never ordered up when he pays an evening visit has so far recommended him to mrs yorke that she has not yet made him the subject of private animadversions with her husband she has not yet found out that he is hampered by a secret intrigue which prevents him from marrying or that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing discoveries which she made at an early date after marriage concerning most of her husband's bachelor friends and excluded them from her board accordingly which part of her conduct indeed might be said to have its just and sensible as well as its harsh side well is it you she says to mr moore as he comes up to her and gives his hand what are you roving about at this time of night for you should be at home can a single man be said to have a home madam he asks pooh says mrs yorke who despises conventional smoothness quite as much as her husband does and practises it as little and whose plain speaking on all occasions is carried to a point calculated sometimes to awaken admiration but oftener alarm pooh you need not talk nonsense to me a single man can have a home if he likes pray does not your sister make a home for you not she joined in mr yorke hortense is an honest lass but when i was robert's age i had five or six sisters all as decent and proper as she is but you see hester for all that it did not hinder me from looking out for a wife and sorely he has repented marrying me added mrs yorke who liked occasionally to crack a dry jest against matrimony even though it should be at her own expense he has repented it in sackcloth and ashes robert moore as you may well believe when you see his punishment here she pointed to her children who would burden themselves with such a set of great rough lads as those if they could help it it is not only bringing them into the world though that is bad enough but they are all to feed to clothe to rear to settle in life young sir when you feel tempted to marry think of our four sons and two daughters and look twice before you leap i am not tempted now at any rate i think these are not times for marrying or giving in marriage a lugubrious sentiment of this sort was sure to obtain mrs yorke's approbation she nodded and groaned acquiescence but in a minute she said i make little account of the wisdom of a solomon of your age it will be upset by the first fancy that crosses you meantime sit down sir you can talk i suppose as well sitting as standing this was her way of inviting her guest to take a chair he had no sooner obeyed her than little jessie jumped from her father's knee and ran into mr moore's arms which were very promptly held out to receive her you talk of marrying him said she to her mother quite indignantly as she was lifted lightly to his knee and he is married now or as good he promised that i should be his wife last summer the first time he saw me in my new white frock and blue sash didn't he father these children were not accustomed to say papa and mamma their mother would allow no such namby-pamby ay my little lassie he promised i'll bear witness but make him say it over again now jessie such as he are only false loons he is not false he is too bonny to be false said jessie looking up to her tall sweetheart with the fullest confidence in his faith bonny cried mr yorke that's the reason that he should be 
and proof that he is a scoundrel but he looks too sorrowful to be false here interposed a quiet voice from behind the father's chair if he was always laughing i should think he forgot promises soon but mr moore never laughs your sentimental buck is the greatest cheat of all rose remarked mr yorke he's not sentimental said rose mr moore turned to her with a little surprise smiling at the same time how do you know i am not sentimental rose because i heard a lady say you were not voila qui devie intéressant exclaimed mr yorke hitching his chair nearer the fire a lady that has quite a romantic twang we must guess who it is rosie whisper the name low to your father don't let him hear rose don't be too forward to talk here interrupted mrs yorke in her usual killjoy fashion nor jessie either it becomes all children especially girls to be silent in the presence of their elders why have we tons then asked jessie pertly while rose only looked at her mother with an expression that seemed to say she should take that maxim in and think it over at her leisure after two minutes grave deliberation she asked and why especially girls mother firstly because i say so and secondly because discretion and reserve are girls best wisdom my dear madam observed moore what you say is excellent it reminds me indeed of my dear sister's observations but really it is not applicable to these little ones let rose and jessie talk to me freely or my chief pleasure in coming here is gone i like their prattle it does me good does it not asked jessie more good than if the rough lads came round you you call them rough mother yourself yes mignon a thousand times more good i have rough lads enough about me all day long poulet there are plenty of people continued she who take notice of the boys all my uncles and aunts seem to think their nephews better than their nieces and when gentlemen come here to dine it is always matthew and mark and martin that are talked to and never rose and me mr moore is our friend and we'll keep him but mind rose he is not so much your friend as he is mine he is my particular acquaintance remember that and she held up her small hand with an admonitory gesture rose was quite accustomed to be admonished by that small hand her will daily bent itself to that of the impetuous little jessie she was guided overruled by jessie in a thousand things on all occasions of show and pleasure jessie took the lead and rose fell quietly into the background whereas when the disagreeables of life its work and privations were in question rose instinctively took upon her in addition to her own share what she could of her sisters jessie had already settled it in her mind that she when she was old enough was to be married rose she decided must be an old maid to live with her look after her children keep her house this state of things is not uncommon between two sisters where one is plain and the other pretty but in this case if there was a difference in external appearance rose had the advantage her face was more regular featured than that of the piquant little jessie jessie however was destined to possess along with sprightly intelligence and vivacious feeling the gift of fascination the power to charm when where and whom she would rose was to have a fine generous soul a noble intellect profoundly cultivated a heart as true as steel but the manner to attract was not to be hers now rose tell me the name of this lady who denied that i was sentimental urged mr moore rose had no idea of tantalization or she would have held him a while in doubt she answered briefly i can't i don't know her name describe her to me what was she like where did you see her when jessie and i went to spend the day at winbury with kate and susan pearson who were just come home from school there was a party at mrs pearson's and some grown-up ladies were sitting in a corner of the drawing-room talking about you did you know none of them 
hannah and harriet and dora and mary sykes good were they abusing me rosy some of them were they called you a misanthrope i remember the word i looked for it in the dictionary when i came home it means a man-hater what besides hannah sykes said you were a solemn puppy better cried mr yorke laughing oh excellent hannah that's the one with the red hair a fine girl but half-witted she has wit enough for me it appears said moore a solemn puppy indeed well rose go on miss pearson said she believed there was a good deal of affectation about you and that with your dark hair and pale face you looked to her like some sort of a sentimental noodle again mr yorke laughed mrs yorke even joined in this time you see in what esteem you are held behind your back said she yet i believe that miss pearson would like to catch you she set her cap at you when you first came into the country old as she is and who contradicted her rosy inquired moore a lady whom i don't know because she never visits here though i see her every sunday at church she sits in the pew near the pulpit i generally look at her instead of looking at my prayer-book for she is like a picture in our dining-room that woman with the dove in her hand at least she has eyes like it and a nose too a straight nose that makes all her face look somehow what i call clear and you don't know her exclaimed jessie in a tone of exceeding surprise that's so like rose mr moore i often wonder in what sort of a world my sister lives i'm sure she does not live all her time in this one is continually finding out that she is quite ignorant of some little matter which everybody else knows to think of her going solemnly to church every sunday and looking all service time at one particular person and never so much as asking that person's name she means caroline hellstone the rector's niece i remember all about it miss hellstone was quite angry with ann pearson she said robert moore is neither affected nor sentimental you mistake his character utterly or rather not one of you here knows anything about it now shall i tell you what she is like i can tell what people are like and how they are dressed better than rose can let us hear she is nice she is fair she has a pretty white slender throat she has long curls not stiff ones they hang loose and soft their colour is brown but not dark she speaks quietly with a clear tone she never makes a bustle in moving she often wears a grey silk dress she is neat all over her gowns and her shoes and her gloves always fit her she is what i call a lady and when i am as tall as she is i mean to be like her shall i suit you if i am will you really marry me moore stroked jessie's hair for a minute he seemed as if he would draw her nearer to him but instead he put her a little farther off oh you won't have me you push me away why jessie you care nothing about me you never come to see me now at the hollow because you don't ask me hereupon mr moore gave both the little girls an invitation to pay him a visit next day promising that as he was going to stilbro in the morning he would buy them each a present of what nature he would not then declare but they must come and see jessie was about to reply when one of the boys unexpectedly broke in i know that miss hellstone you have all been palavering about she's an ugly girl i hate her i hate all womenites i wonder what they were made for martin said his father for martin it was the lad only answered by turning his cynical young face half arch half truculent towards the paternal chair martin my lad thou art a swaggering whelp now thou wilt some day be an outrageous puppy but stick to those sentiments of thine see i'll write down the words now in my pocket-book the senior took out a morocco-covered book and deliberately wrote therein ten years hence martin if thou and i be both alive at that day i'll remind thee of that speech i'll say the same then i mean always to hate women they're such dolls they do nothing but dress themselves finely and go swimming about to be admired i'll never marry i'll be a bachelor stick to it stick to it hester addressing his wife i was like him when i was his age a regular misogamist 
and behold by the time i was three-and-twenty being then a tourist in france and italy and the lord knows where i curled my hair every night before i went to bed and wore a ring in my ear and would have worn one in my nose if it had been the fashion and all that i might make myself pleasing and charming to the ladies martin will do the like will i never i've more sense what a guy you were father as to dressing i make this vow i'll never dress more finely than as you see me at present mr moore i'm clad in blue cloth from top to toe and they laugh at me and call me sailor at the grammar school i laugh louder at them and say they are all magpies and parrots with their coats one colour and their waistcoats another and their trousers a third i'll always wear blue cloth and nothing but blue cloth it is beneath a human being's dignity to dress himself in party-coloured garments ten years hence martin no tailor's shop will have choice of colours varied enough for thy exacting taste no perfumer's stores essences exquisite enough for thy fastidious senses martin looked disdain but vouchsafed no further reply meantime mark who for some minutes had been rummaging amongst a pile of books on a side-table took the word he spoke in a peculiarly slow quiet voice with an expression of still irony in his face not easy to describe mr moore said he you think perhaps it was a compliment on miss caroline hellstone's part to say you were not sentimental i thought you appeared confused when my sisters told you the words as if you felt flattered you turned red just like a certain vain little lad at our school who always thinks proper to blush when he gets a rise in the class for your benefit mr moore i've been looking up the word sentimental in the dictionary and i find it to mean tinctured with sentiment on examining further sentiment is explained to be thought idea notion a sentimental man then is one who has thoughts ideas notions an unsentimental man is one destitute of thought idea or notion and mark stopped he did not smile he did not look round for admiration he had said his say and was silent ma foi mon ami observed mr moore to york ce sont vraiment des enfants terribles que les vôtres rose who had been listening attentively to mark's speech replied to him there are different kinds of thoughts ideas and notions said she good and bad sentimental must refer to the bad or miss hellstone must have taken it in that sense for she was not blaming mr moore she was defending him that's my kind little advocate said moore taking rose's hand she was defending him repeated rose as i should have done had i been in her place for the other ladies seemed to speak spitefully ladies always do speak spitefully observed martin it is the nature of womenites to be spiteful matthew now for the first time opened his lips what a fool martin is to be always gabbling about what he does not understand it is my privilege as a free man to gabble on whatever subject i like responded martin you use it or rather abuse it to such an extent rejoined the elder brother that you prove you ought to have been a slave a slave a slave that to a york and from a york this fellow he added standing up at the table and pointing across it to matthew this fellow forgets what every cottier in briarfield knows that all born of our house have that arched instep under which water can flow proof that there has not been a slave of the blood for three hundred years mountebank said matthew lads be silent exclaimed mr york martin you are a mischief-maker there would have been no disturbance but for you indeed is that correct did i begin or did matthew had i spoken to him when he accused me of gabbling like a fool a presumptuous fool repeated matthew here mrs york commenced rocking herself rather a portentous movement with her as it was occasionally followed especially when matthew was worsted in a conflict by a fit of hysterics i don't see why i should bear insolence from matthew york or what right he has to use bad language to me observed martin he has no right my lad but forgive your brother until seventy and seven times said mr york soothingly always alike in theory and practice always adverse murmured martin as he turned to leave the room where art thou going my son asked the father somewhere where i shall be safe from insult if in this house i can find any such place matthew laughed very insolently martin threw a strange look at him and trembled through all his slight lad's frame but he restrained himself i suppose there is no objection to my withdrawing he inquired no go my lad but remember not to bear malice martin went and matthew sent another insolent laugh after him 
rose lifting her fair head from moore's shoulder against which for a moment it had been resting said as she directed a steady gaze to matthew martin is grieved and you are glad but i would rather be martin than you i dislike your nature here mr moore by way of averting or at least escaping a scene which a sob from mrs york warned him was likely to come on rose and putting jessie off his knee he kissed her and rose reminding them at the same time to be sure and come to the hollow in good time to-morrow afternoon then having taken leave of his hostess he said to mr york may i speak a word with you and was followed by him from the room their brief conference took place in the hall have you employment for a good workman asked moore a nonsense question in these times when you know that every master has many good workmen to whom he cannot give full employment you must oblige me by taking on this man if possible my lad i can take on no more hands to oblige all england it does not signify i must find him a place somewhere who is he william farron i know william a right down honest man is william he has been out of work three months he has a large family we are sure they cannot live without wages he was one of the deputation of cloth dressers who came to me this morning to complain and threaten william did not threaten he only asked me to give them rather more time to make my changes more slowly you know i cannot do that straightened on all sides as i am i have nothing for it but to push on i thought it would be idle to palaver long with them i sent them away after arresting a rascal amongst them whom i hope to transport a fellow who preaches at the chapel yonder sometimes not moses barraclough yes ah you've arrested him good then out of a scoundrel you're going to make a martyr you've done a wise thing i've done a right thing well the shorter the long of it is i'm determined to get fair in a place and i reckon on you to give him one this is cool however exclaimed mr york what right have you to reckon on me to provide for your dismissed workmen what do i know about your farons and your williams i've heard he's an honest man but i am i to support all the honest men in yorkshire you may say that would be no great charge to undertake but great or little i'll none of it come mr york what can you find for him to do i find you'll make me use language i'm not accustomed to use i wish you would go home here is the door set off moore sat down on one of the hall chairs you can't give him work in your mill good but you have land find him some occupation on your land mr york bob i thought you cared nothing about our lourdes de paysans i don't understand this change i do the fellow spoke to me nothing but truth and sense i answered him just as roughly as i did the rest who jabbered mere gibberish i couldn't make distinctions there and then his appearance told what he had gone through lately clearer than his words but where is the use of explaining let him have work let him have it yourself if you are so very much in earnest strain a point if there was a point left in my affairs to strain i would strain it till it cracked again but i received letters this morning which showed me pretty clearly where i stand and it is not far off the end of the plank my foreign market at any rate is gorged if there is no change if there dawns no prospect of peace if the orders in council are not at least suspended so as to open our way in the west i do not know where i am to turn i see no more light than if i were sealed in a rock so that for me to pretend to offer a man a livelihood would be to do a dishonest thing come let us take a turn on the front it is a starlight night said mr york they passed out closing the front door after them and side by side paced the frost-white pavement to and fro settle about farron at once urged mr moore you have large fruit gardens at york mills he is a good gardener give him work there well so be it i'll send for him to-morrow and we'll see and now my lad you're concerned about the condition of your affairs yes a second failure which i may delay but which at this moment i see no way finally to avert would blight the name of moore completely and you are aware i had fine intentions of paying off every debt and re-establishing the old firm on its former basis you want capital that's all you want yes but you might as well say that breath is all a dead man wants to live i know i know capital is not to be had for the asking and if you were a married man and had a family like me i should think your case pretty nigh desperate but the young and unencumbered have chances peculiar to themselves i hear gossip now and then about your being on the eve of marriage with this miss 
and that but i suppose it is none of it true you may well suppose that i think i am not in a position to be dreaming of marriage marriage i cannot bear the word it sounds so silly and utopian i have settled it decidedly that marriage and love are superfluities intended only for the rich who live at ease and have no need to take thought for the morrow or desperations the last and reckless joy of the deeply wretched who never hope to rise out of the slough of their uttered poverty i should not think so if i were circumstanced as you are i should think i could very likely get a wife with a few thousands who would suit both me and my affairs i wonder where would you try if you had a chance i don't know it depends on in short it depends on many things would you take an old woman i'd rather break stones on the road so would i would you take an ugly one bah i hate ugliness and delight in beauty my eyes and heart york take pleasure in a sweet young fair face as they are repelled by a grim rugged meagre one soft delicate lines and hues please harsh ones prejudice me i won't have an ugly wife not if she were rich not if she were dressed in gems i could not love i could not fancy i could not endure her my taste must have satisfaction or disgust would break out in despotism or worse freeze to utter iciness what bob if you married an honest good-natured and wealthy lass though a little hard favoured couldn't you put up with the high cheekbones and the rather wide mouth and reddish hair i'll never try i tell you grace at least i will have and youth and symmetry yes and what i call beauty and poverty and a nursery full of barons you can neither clothe nor feed and very soon an anxious faded mother and then bankruptcy discredit a lifelong struggle let me alone york if you are romantic robert and especially if you are already in love it is of no use talking i am not romantic i am stripped of romance as bare as the white tenters in that field are of cloth always use such figures of speech lad i can understand them and there is no love affair to disturb your judgment i thought i had said enough on that subject before love for me stuff well then if you are sound both in heart and head there is no reason why you should not profit by a good chance if it offers therefore wait and see you are quite oracular york i think i am a bit in that line i promise ye not and advise ye not but i bid ye keep your heart up and be guided by circumstances my namesake the physician's almanac could not speak more guardedly in the meantime i care naught about ye robert moore ye are nothing akin to me or mine and whether ye lose or find a fortune it makes no difference to me go home now it is stricken ten miss hortense will be wondering where ye are End of section nine